Good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. I am glad you guys are here. I'm glad you're watching online. If you've never been before, our teaching pastor, Pastor Matt, is awesome. Make sure you come back and hear him. But he is taking a three-week vacation with his wife, well-deserved vacation, to Scotland. Can you imagine Pastor Matt in Scotland? So I would like to do a poll. How many people, raise your hand, if you would like to see him in a kilt when he comes back on the first Sunday? All right. Anybody saying that was the worst idea that I've had today? Okay, a couple in the back. Some of the British people I see are... Would have a problem with that, but the rest of us looks like we're in. First thing I want to do before I forget is do a, a update. As you guys know, we're, we are uh, building a new hub. You see the swimming pool is almost finished if you've driven by. It's, oh, I'm sure there's somebody out there that is saying, why are this church building a swimming pool? We're digging a, a big hole for uh, water processing, so that's well underway. Um, the giving continues to come in, and we are up to... There you go. We're actually a little bit higher than that. I, know, I looked at it today. It went up a little bit from that. So we still have a month left of our goal for $440,000 to give us a little bit of pad on this building. It's going to be awesome. People are really excited. People in the community are really excited. I know the chief of police has asked me four times whether he can have host the pancake breakfast there because the fire department's walked away from the pancake breakfast, which is sacrilege. I'm sure you guys are with me on that. Um, I said, absolutely, so be prepared for that. The first uh, June that we have it up, we're going to do a pancake breakfast there, so I'm going to hit all you guys up to help serve. All right, well, let's go ahead and pray to start out with, okay? Lord, uh, we ask for you to be here in a very real and tangible way. I pray that you would help us to set aside anything that would keep us from hearing what it is you want us to hear today. Pray that your word would be uh, received richly and would transform lives. Would, um, maybe a knowledge of you that we hadn't had before, or maybe a better understanding of your plan for our lives. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you have not downloaded our app yet, I would encourage you to do that. We have a free app that you can get on any of the platforms. It has some notes in there that might make a little bit more sense this morning. And I'm con continuing a series that I started last summer um, called If Then. If we are a follower of Jesus, then there are certain things that should be true or should show in our life in some way, okay? But I want you to really hear me here. This is really important. These are not works. If you're following Jesus, you are saved. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you could do to be saved. It's a gift, right? But once we are following Jesus, he's, he begins to transform us. So certain things should be apparent in our lives. So the first one I had was, if we were a follower of Jesus, then our identity is first, foremost, and forever Jesus, right? The second one was, if I follow Jesus, then everything that we have is his. And the other one was, if I follow Jesus, then we will take the Great Commission seriously. So those are the, the first three that I did. The one today we're dealing with the the idea between truth and grace and how there's a little bit of tension there. And so that's what we're going to be exploring today. And as I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking about the church that my family and I attended in uh, Orange County before we moved up here. Orange County, California, a uh, really wealthy beach town that we went to and a really cool church. There were thousands of people that would attend on a Sunday morning. And it was divided into two groups. And by the way, both these groups are very different from Duval. But the first group was a lot of young married couples. That was the group that we were in, and, and it was very vibrant. You know, we had these huge groups that we would meet with. The other one was older people, 
They don't seem old to me now, but at the time they seemed really old. Um, they're older people, and they were really well off, almost without exception. They were really wealthy, and they had certain things that were important to them. Uh, their house was really important to them. You know, what neighborhood they lived in, what car they drove, how many times the car was detailed in, in a month was very important to them. Uh, plastic surgery was very, very common. Plastic surgery would happen all the time. And then another thing I remember that was really unusual are uh, the women would wear furs. And I'll bet you most of the people in this room has probably never seen a woman wear a fur, other than maybe coyote or something, if you're a hunter or something. But um, these weren't those kind of furs. These were really, really expensive furs. And, you know, there isn't a lot of opportunity to wear furs in Orange County, California. And what I learned is these people would actually contract with places that would store their furs because they would have to be, I don't know what went in there, but something happened in there. I've always had to be the same, the right humidity or temperature or something, but they would put them in there, and then they would, but they would bring them out every chance they would get, and one of the chances they would get would be on Christmas Eve, because the service was at night, and so it, you know, got to a brisk 49 degrees by the end of the service, so you'd have to have your fur. So if you're standing in the lobby, you'd see lots of people would come through wearing furs, and I remember uh, my daughter was standing next to me, and this lady walked in, and she had what I believe was a fox stole, and if you've never seen a fox stole, they're kind of weird, because they got part of their head is still on there, right? And my daughter, who is two, looked at me and she goes, Dad, why is that woman wearing a weasel? <laughs> and to this day, I can't answer that question. I do not know why she was wearing it then, but it was very strange. It was a very different culture, and she couldn't understand it. Now, the pastor at that church, fantastic teacher, really famous in the denomination in the community, had a radio talk show, all that kind of stuff. He had the habit of every time he started a sermon, he would welcome everybody to the local chapter of Sinners Anonymous. And I thought that was beautiful because it reminds us of who we are, right? We are all sinners redeemed by the blood of Jesus, right? So it sets that tone. It also explains to those who may be visiting or maybe not affiliated with Jesus in any way that we aren't perfect, right? We aren't made righteous by any effort on our part. We're made righteous by Jesus' sacrifice for us, right? Now, not long, I don't know, several months after he started doing this, one of these ladies, one of the weasel-wearing ladies, came into the uh, governing board of the church and said, I will not go to a church that refers to me as a sinner. I, I, I do not want to attend a church that says they're a, a chapter of Sinners Anonymous. And I, was, I wasn't on that board, but I was on another one. I heard tell of this, and it, I was pretty new Christian, and I was saying, well, what? How, what, what's the problem? Why, why was she offended? And I think what it comes down to is she didn't understand how sinful we are. And or she didn't understand how holy God is. Because otherwise, how could you be offended? That was my takeaway from that. I think if God withdrew his grace from us as individuals and his common grace, it would be a horror show like we've never seen. To, to actually see what we would be without any influence of God. So there's this tension. By the way, if we are not living under that grace, we can't offer to others. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But I think if we're not careful, all Christians can fall to maybe being all truth and no grace or all grace and no truth. It's easy for us to fall in those camps. We need both. Even though sometimes I think truth and grace can seem to be in conflict with each other, right? How can they be truth and grace? That seems weird. 
And we can think that Jesus is all one or the other, that he's all grace or he's all truth. But I will cut to, I'll cut to the chase here. Jesus is 100% truth and 100% grace. He doesn't turn one off. He doesn't lean toward one or the other. He's both. There's that tension. And we, as his followers, need to be comfortable with that tension. As I said, Christians can fall into one of two camps if we're not careful. Truth-oriented Christians would be ones that love to study the Bible. They're, they're memorizing scripture. They're, they're debating theology. They're reading all these theology books. All awesome things. Those are all great, great things to do. But if they're not careful, if you're only focusing on truth, we can tend to be judgmental and unforgiving because we're not living under grace. Okay? The other side, grace-only oriented Christians are all about forgiveness and not being judgmental. Awesome. That's, that's fantastic. We should all be that, right? But if we fall into that camp, we can ignore Scripture and we lose track of the righteousness of God, right? This idea, if, if we don't stand for righteousness as Jesus' followers, who will? Truth without grace produces legalism that we see in the Pharisees, right, over and over and over. And this, the, the real problem with this is it makes Jesus and his church very unattractive. Right, if we're always about, if all we did when people come in here, this, you gotta change this, you gotta stop doing this, you gotta do this, boom, boom, boom. That's not who Jesus is. But grace without truth creates moral relativism. Right? And it keeps people from understanding that they need Jesus. And there's a temptation for us to fall into that camp because we wanna be nice to everybody. And we can love them all the way to hell if they don't know that they need Jesus. So let's define some terms. Truth. The secular definition of truth I looked up, it says accordance with fact or reality. Sounds pretty controversial free, I think. Until you read anything over the last 15 years, right? Truth has a current day definition now. And the one I decided to use is the individual world of preference and opinion. Okay? Now, you guys have all heard the term my truth, right? I've got my truth, this is my truth, that's your truth, you have another truth over there. As an old man, what I hear there is using, if we, if we exchange the word truth for gravity, could I say, well, I've got my gravity, you have your gravity over there, another gravity over here, this gravity bounds you to the earth, mine, I could fly up to the catwalk, no problem, right? You can't do that because gravity is an absolute and truth is an absolute unless you take God out of the equation. As soon as you remove God from the equation, then truth can be whatever you want. He's still there. I can say there's no gravity, but if I jump off this stage, it's going to be a problem. All right? Truth is a real thing. The biblical definition of truth is truth is a self-expression of God. Truth is a self-expression of God. It's both theological, who God is, and ontheological, how God is. It is of God and how things actually are. That's truth. John 13, you remember Jesus was standing before Pilate? Pilate said to him, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, and Pilate said to him, what is truth? 
what? It's not been the last 15 years. It's been forever that, that people, we, we have a trouble with truth, right? We don't want to be told what's what. Confusion about truth has been around a long time. So what is truth? I'm going to run through a list here, and then we're going to come back and visit them, so don't panic if you're taking notes in the, uh, in the app. But the first one is God is truth. God is truth. His word is truth. How his creation is designed to function is truth. Jesus' followers walk in the truth. And truth acts as a guide that draws us to God. That one, as I was thinking about it, I thought, well, to me, that is, there's a chasm that we have to cross. It's pretty far. There is a small footbridge that we get to cross it on, but it's a 1,500-foot drop, and there's jagged rocks at the bottom. Pretty scary circumstance, right, if we, have to, if we have to cross this chasm across this narrow bridge. Fortunately, somebody has built guide rails along this bridge, which is pretty cool. Now, they're not real high. They're about this high, so I can get over the guide rail if I want to, but that would be foolish because certain death awaits. Those are there to help me get across. Now, I can certainly curse the manufacturer of the guide rails because they do limit my freedom. They're keeping me on the bridge. But if I were to do that, you'd say, man, you are silly or crazy or whatever you are. Why would you curse that, the, the creator, the the rails are not a punishment for us, they're for our protection. And that's what truth is. God is truth. John 14 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. Very specific, very dogmatic. He said the, he didn't say a. I am the way, that's truth. I would say if he said a, then that's a truth but the is the truth. God's word is truth. In John 17, Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. You know the word sanctify means to become more like Jesus. He's saying, through your truth, Lord, make them more like me. That should be our goal on a daily basis, right? Seeking the truth so we become more and more like Jesus every day. And, and as we're, we're doing this, because some of these if-thens are kind of litmus tests to how we're doing, right, in our faith. If we can look back at however long you've been a Christian, if you've been a Christian more than a couple of years, and you can look back 5, 10, 40 years, if you have not seen any, any sanctification going on in your life, let's reboot, okay? The Holy Spirit's working on each of us every single day. So the things that, that we struggled with 20 years ago that, that we're a challenge because we were less like Jesus than we are today should come easier to us. Acts 17 says, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message, and they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. The word of God is there as a guardrail for us so that we can measure these things, right? If, I, if I'm up here and I say anything that goes against the scripture, tell me now. Stand up and tell me now. If, 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 if I were there and a pastor was up here saying anything that wasn't of the Bible, that afternoon there would be an elder meeting. No, no exaggeration. This is for us, these guardrails. His creation is designed to function 
I'm sorry, how his creation is designed to function is truth. Romans 2 says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. Do you ever think it's weird that in every culture, murder is wrong? Now, I've had this debate with people. They say, no, 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 that's, that's an evolutionary product. That would be about four sermons, but I'm very confident to debate you on it. If anybody wants to debate you, it'll only cost you buying me lunch, and I will, I will go through this. I can prove to you that's not the case. Everybody in the world has common grace upon them, and some part of that is written on their hearts. Okay? Jesus' followers walk in the truth. Third John says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. This is a pastor telling his flock, I am so thrilled that you guys have heard what God said through me and you're taking, you're taking it to heart and you're being transformed and you're walking in the truth. There's no greater joy than that. Ephesians 4 says that we will be mature in the Lord so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Every week, I see some pastor on YouTube that is way off the rails preaching something. Hasn't it is in direct conflict with the scripture. That's why the truth is so important. As, as Jesus followers, we should be looking for, studying, and being thankful for these guardrails. We should praise God every time one comes up. Now, let's talk about our enemy. Jesus is the truth, and Satan is the antithesis of truth. John 8, Jesus is, spoke, is speaking to a bunch of religious people who are really into how good they are. They thought they had it going on. There are probably some weasel wearers in that group, I assume. I don't know. But he says, And you love to do the evil things that he, Satan, does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Keep that in mind. When you hear somebody that is going against the truth, that person is being fed that from our enemy. Second Thessalonians 2 says, he, Satan, will use every kind of evil de deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. Second Timothy 4 says, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teachings. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. If I was not afraid of God and wanted to be successful at opening up a church, I could do it this week. I would know exactly what to say. People would flock to the doors because their ears are itching to hear lies. And that, pas that passage in 2 Timothy, we are there now, by the way. This, this, could, this, is, this could be read in the newspaper today. All right, now let's look at grace. The biblical definition of grace is undeserved favor. 
It's the simplest one. It's a gift from God. Grace is what saved us. Jesus sacrificing himself for us. He gives it to us. It is nothing we earn. He gives it to us. That is undeserved favor because none of us deserve it. Don't believe me. Isaiah tells me in uh, 64, he says, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. If you've ever shared the gospel with somebody and they say, why do I need to be forgiven? I'm, I'm better than 51% of the people and I'm pretty sure God grades on a curve, so I, I think I should be fine, right? I, I've never murdered anybody, I, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's important that we understand the truth enough that we can share with people how far we miss the mark, right? Because we don't have to sin at just a minuscule amount before we'll miss the mark. That's why we need forgiveness. That's why we need grace. Ephesians 2 said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you're here today, you're online, you are not following Jesus. If you're walking away from him, that is, he, he, this scripture is talking to you. Okay? You are following a false god who is Satan. And if you left it there, it would be pretty grim. And I have people come to me and they say, well, I want, I want a fair God. He should not send anybody to hell. Pray, praise God that he is not fair. Because even if he was fair, we would all go to hell. Praise God that he is merciful. And that's the next part of the passage. If you're, if you're walking away from Jesus, hear this, hear this, hear this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he's had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's what you are now if you're not following Jesus, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is available to you if you are here today. If you're hearing these words and you're walking away from Jesus, you turn around, he will accept you as the loving father. He will make everything right between you and the Trinity. Your life will change. From that moment on, you're going to be sanctified. You're going to be changing the way that you interact with everybody. You're going to be changing the way you face problems. It is one of our slogans is life is better with Jesus. That's what happens. Today that could happen if you did that. All you've got to do is turn around. If you're here, come, come and hug me. I want to hug you so bad. If you're online, reach out to somebody that's a believer. The Bible says when that happens, the angels throw a party. I'm all about parties. Make it happen today. You remember the, the scene where Jesus is crucified, right? He's crucified between two criminals, that were guilty, they were thieves, they were being killed in the exact same way he was on the cross. One of them, one of these thieves, was so sold out to his sin, he starts mocking Jesus. He starts ridiculing him. Can you imagine? I mean, you've got to give this guy credit for, for toeing the line, man. I mean, he is really into sin. He's going to go, while he's being killed, he is mocking the guy that he knows to be innocent next to him. How corrupt the human heart can become. 
The other thief, though, experienced something very different. He knew truth. And in Luke 23, it says, But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God, even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. That's truth. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's grace. Truth and grace right in that story. That's grace. Now again, we can believe that Jesus is only all truth or all grace. You hear people say, I, I like the God of the New Testament, but the God of the Old Testament bums me out, right? He's all about judgment and bad things happen in the one. And the New Testament is all about love and nobody gets in any trouble. It's the same God. It's Jesus all the way through. Different sides of him, same God. And when you hear this, please remember that Satan's speaking to you. Satan is lying to you. Tell him to beat it. The Bible tells us about both sides of Jesus all through the Bible, but probably nowhere is it as concise as in the book of Revelation. If you know the book of Revelation, it is God revealing what heaven's going to be like to John. Right? And it is wild. If you haven't read Revelation, it's worth a read. It is wild. But if you look in Revelation 5, it's talking about the throne room, right, where Jesus sits. And it says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Notice lamb is capitalized. That's Jesus. Do you know why it looked like he had been slain? Because he'd been slain. For your sins and for mine. He stood, he stood in for our sin. He, he paid the price. Okay, that's grace. The next chapter, however, Revelation 6, talks about a mass of people gathered. There's powerful, wealthy people and humble people standing there, and they are losing it because they're witnessing what's, what's happening. And it says, they were calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, capital L. That's Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate judge of the world. Jesus is the ultimate judge of you and I. You do not want to stand before the Lamb without being washed in his blood. If you're walking away from him, you need to turn back toward him. Jesus is fully grace and fully truth. That's the same God. Romans 5.8 says, And God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. I believe that Jesus went to his death on that cross with everybody within the sound of my voice on his mind. That's why he was so overwhelmed. The sins of, of ages. And when we can understand grace for what it is and what he did, then we can start to appreciate, I believe, what it is. Because if we're honest, Hitler and Mao and Jeffrey Dahmer and me and you have something really core in common. We're all sinners. We are desperate to be redeemed. And have you ever felt that you maybe are unworthy of this redemption? Have you ever felt that? I used to feel that sometimes. Uh, there's sins in my life that I keep repeating and I did this and you know, I don't know if you've ever felt that. Are, are, are you really worthy of such a great sacrifice? Let me put your mind at rest. No, you're not. Me neither. He did it anyway. 
He loved us so much he did it anyway. We didn't deserve it. He forgives us fully. There's a debt to be paid. Jesus paid it. This is great. The slave, tainer, the slave trader turned Christian, turned pastor, turned writer of amazing grace. John Newton said this. In his old age, he said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. God's love personified equals Jesus. John chapter 1 says, From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another, for the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. Galatians 2 says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there'd be no need for Christ to die. I don't know if you hear this too, that you ever talk to people and they say, well, I believe that Jesus was, was a good man, but there's many ways to God. No. No. That's a lie. Jesus is very specific about it. I'm the way. That's a lie. If you hear that, that's a lie. Explain that to somebody in a loving way that they can help to be understood, right? Because they're, they're being lied to people by people constantly, all day long. There's only one way. Here's, here's my thing. If there was more than one way, why did Jesus come to earth to die? crazy, right? Why would, why would the, the God of the universe lower himself, come here, be humiliated and, and tortured, right? Go to his death. All he had to do was come down and say, you know what? There's lots of ways. Here they are. Pick one. And you'll be made right with God, right? And I'll, I'll see you up there. No, there's only one way, and Jesus is the only way. At a religious conference, C.S. Lewis was asked, what is unique about Christianity? He said, that's easy. It's grace. That's what makes Christianity different from all others. If you look at all other systems of, of religion, they're all based on works, right? You, you do things to make you get closer to God, or you do things to, to please him, or you do things to reach nirvana or enlightenment or the next level of heaven or whatever it is, you, you're earning your way. Now, it seems weird to me that all other religions have that, Except this religion, Christianity, has grace that you cannot earn. So why is that? I believe why that is is because those are all authored by the, the father of lies, and he knows that those work. There's something in us, maybe it's our pride, that we want to feel like, I don't want to be given this, I want to earn it. Right? I'm self-made. I'm a self-made whatever I am. I'm going to earn my way into to having God pleased with me. It's not how it works. He's already paid that price. When, on the cross, when Jesus says, it is finished, and then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, I believe him saying that was a shorthand for I love you, and the plan that has existed for eons is now in full effect. I'm making it all right. Now you can rest that you're going to be reunited fully with God. I think if we, if we recognized what that means, truly, if I kept that in the, in the front of my mind every day, I should be giving high fives to everybody all the time. That is a monumental thing. It would be like me getting the love of my life to marry me, which happened, uh, winning the Super Bowl, winning 
some, some great Powerball jackpot, winning the Nobel Peace Prize, and everything else I wanted in an afternoon. That's a little glimpse of what it is to be saved by Jesus. Jesus reminds us of this in, in Luke 10. He says, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I should be doing that constantly. It, it convicts me that I get discouraged by things that I shouldn't. You know, some things are bad, right? It's like, oh, I'm struggling with this health issue, but my name is written in heaven. Somebody else, uh, I'm, I'm worried I'm going to lose this job, but my name is written in heaven. The other one, I've lost somebody that's very dear to me, but my name is written in heaven. I'm, I'm estranged from somebody that I feel I should be close with. My name is written in heaven. None of those things are good, but we need to keep it in perspective. We need to be rejoicing and praising God for that with every breath. I need that. Luke 19 says, and all of Jesus' followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they'd seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying something like that. He replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. I am convicted by this. I think if we stopped praising God, if we stopped coming on Sunday morning and singing praises to him, and we stopped thanking him every day for all the things we have to thank him for, particularly that our names are written in heaven, the rocks would carry on. Maybe the trees. We know he can use a donkey to do this. I'm telling you, if we stopped, God forbid that we ever stop. If we stopped, nature would take over because nature knows. Nature knows better than we do sometimes. Nature knows. Okay, so if we're followers of Jesus, how do we live with truth and grace in this tension? How do we make sure not to go off one path or the other? I guess we should look to Jesus. Let's see how Jesus does it. In John 8, it says, But early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against it, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who's never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. There's much conjecture about what he was doing. What, what was he writing in the dust? Right? Some people say, well, he's writing the Ten Commandments. Maybe. I think he may have been writing the names of each one of those people right there and starting to list their sins. Imagine that. Imagine standing before Jesus and he's writing down. Imagine he just wrote down what I did yesterday. Pretty embarrassing, right? Imagine he's doing that. Goes on. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. That's why I think he was writing down a list, because the oldest would have a bigger list. Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. So if we see in that story that Jesus did not condemn her, 
but he also doesn't affirm or condone her sin. So when he says, neither do I, that's grace. When he says, go and sin no more, that's truth. The same Jesus. The Pharisees only gave the law with no promise of God. Right? They were just about rules. They fit in with every other religious system, easy peasy, right? Working their way to heaven. When we talk about Jesus, because remember, if we're followers of Jesus, we take the Great Commission seriously, we should present ourselves to people on what God has done to us. It is not helpful, I, I believe, from, from, from an evangelistic standpoint to tell people what's wrong with them, because there's plenty of wrong with me. So I can say, this is how I was before. This is what was important to me. This is what I worshipped. This is the struggles I had. Jesus came to my life, and now I'm this. And that's not through anything I did. It's what he did. That's powerful. Our stories are powerful. Our stories cannot be debated. So if we identify as a follower of Jesus, then we embrace the relationship between truth and grace. It's a good thing. Let's celebrate these things. Let's live in such a way that those around us who don't know about this tension yet will see it as a wonderful, unbelievable plan that God has in store for the world. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will speak into the hearts of everyone here to help us really fully understand your plan. That when we see these things that that guide us, that we would sing your praises. And let us not, those of us that are following you, let us not go for an hour without remembering the great gift of our names being written in heaven, in Jesus' book of life. And if you've listened to this today and you're still with me, praise God. But if you have not turned back toward Jesus, if you want to do that today, all this is available to you. Jesus is on your side he wants the best for you. He doesn't want to restrict you. He wants to give you life full. And he is waiting, waiting, waiting with his arms outstretched, waiting to bring you into the kingdom. I pray, that, Father, that they would hear this and that you would convict them of this today. I ask these things in Jesus' name.